Section 47 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 47. Chapter 14. Italy and the West. 410 to 476 by Ernest Barker. The process of history in the Western Empire during the period which lies between the death of Alaric 410 and the fall of Romulus Augustulus 476 is towards the establishment of Teutonic kingdoms, partly displacing and partly embracing the old local administration within their boundaries but as a rule remaining in some sort of nominal connection with the imperial system itself. In the course of this process, therefore, the imperial scheme, in which the invading barbarians take a regular place under the name of Foederati, still survives along with much of the old provincial machinery, which they find too useful to be disturbed. But while much that is old survives, much is also added which is new. Germanic tribes with their kings and their dooms, their moots and their thirds, settle bodily on the soil, as new forces in the domain of politics and economics, of religion and of law. The Latinized provincial pays a new allegiance to the tribal king. The Roman possessor has to admit the tribesmen as his guests, on part of his lands. The Catholic priest is forced to reconcile himself to the Arianism, which these tribes had inherited from the days of Ulfila. And the Roman jurist, if he can still occupy himself, by reducing the Codex Theodosianus into a Breviarium Alaricianum, must also admit the entrance of strange, leger, Barbarorum into the field of jurisprudence. This process of history may be said to have entered on its effective stage in the West with Alaric's invasion of Italy, but it had been present as a potentiality and a menace for many years before Alaric heard the voice that drew him steadily towards Rome. The frontier war along the lines was as old as the second century, the pressure of the population of the German forests upon the Roman world was so ancient and inveterate, and so much of that population had in one way or another entered the empire for so long a period, that when the barrier finally broke, the flood came as no cataclysm, but as something which was almost in the natural order of things. There may have been movements in Central Asia, which explain the final breach of the Roman barriers. But even without invoking the Huns to our aid, we can see that at the beginning of the 5th century, the Germans would finally have passed the lines, and the Romans at last have failed to stem their advance, owing to the simple operation of causes which had long been at work on either side. Among the Germans, population had grown by leaps and bounds, while subsistence had increased in less than an arithmetical ratio, and the necessity of finding a quieter patria, an unthreatened territory of sufficient size and productivity, 
with an ancient tradition of more intensive culture than they had themselves attained, had become for them a matter of life and death. Among the Romans, population had decayed for century after century, and the land had gone steadily out of cultivation, until nature herself seemed to have created the vacuum into which, in time, she inevitably attracted the Germans. The rush begins with the passage of the Danube by the Goths in 376, and is continued in the passage of the Rhine by the Vandals, Alans and Suaves in 406. A hundred years after the passage of the Danube, the final result of the movement begins to appear in the West. The Prefecture of Gaul now sees in each of its three former dioceses Teutonic kingdoms established, Saxons and Dukes in the Britons, Visigoths under their great king Euric in the seven provinces of Gaul proper, Suaves along with Visigoths in the Spains, in the Prefecture of Italy, two of the three dioceses are under powerful barbarian rulers. Adophacar has just made himself king of Italy, and Gaiseric has long been king of Africa. While the diocese of Illyricum is still in the melting pot, if we regard the movement of events from 410 to 476 internally, and from a Roman point of view, we shall find in the domestic politics of the period much that is the natural correlative of the Volker Wunderung without. Already in the very beginning of this period, and indeed long before, the barbarian has settled in every part of the empire and among every class of society. Masses of barbarians have been attached to the soil as cultivators, inquilini, to fill the gaps in the population and reclaim the derelict soil. Masses, again, have entered the army until it has become almost predominantly German. Barbarian cultivators and soldiers thus formed the basis of the pyramid. But barbarians might also climb to the apex. Under Theodosius I, who had made it his policy to cultivate the friendship of the barbarians, the Frank Arbogast already appears as Magister Militia, and attempts, like Rissima afterwards, to use his office for the purpose of erecting a puppet as emperor. He fell before Theodosius in the Battle of the Frigidus, 394, but the Vandal Stilicho, to whom he is said to have commended the care of his children and the defence of the empire, was the heir of his position, and Stilicho had for successor Aetius, the last of the Romans, but also the friend of the Huns, as Aetius was succeeded in turn by Rissima the Suave. It is these barbaric or semi-barbaric figures, vested with the office of commander-in-chief of the troops of the West, which form the landmarks in the history of the 5th century. And we should be most true to reality if we distinguish the divisions of this period, not only by the regna, of an Honorius or a Valentinian, but by the Magisteria of Constantius, Aetius and Rissima. These empire-destroying saviours of the Western Empire were in reality the prime ministers of their generation, prime ministers resting not on a parliament, 
though they might, like Stilicho, affect to rely on the Senate, but on their control of a barbarian soldiery. Their power depended partly on their influence with this wild force, which the empire at once needed and dreaded, partly on the fact that the nominal representatives of imperial rule were weaklings or boys, whose court was under the influence of women and eunuchs. But the de facto position which they held was also sanctioned since the time of Theodosius by something of a legal guarantee. Treating the West, after the Battle of the Frigidus, as a conquered territory, whose main problem was certain to be that of military defence, Theodosius had left it under the nominal rule of his son, but under the real government of Stilicho, and in his hands he had combined the two commands of infantry and cavalry, which in the East continued to remain distinct. In this position of Magister Utriusque, militia, already anticipated for a time by Arbogast, Stilicho and his successors, who inherited the title, controlled at once the imperial infantry and cavalry, along with the fleets on seas and on rivers. They supervised the barbaric settlements within the empire, and they nominated the heads of the staffs of subordinate officers. As imperial generalissimo, in an age of military exigencies, the barbarian magister militia was the ultimate sovereign, and the title of Patricius, sometimes united with the name of Perens, which in the 5th century came to be applied peculiarly to the master of the troops, proclaimed his sovereignty to the world. Dependent upon barbarian troops, and himself often of barbarian origin, the policy of the master of the troops towards the barbarians outside the pale, who sought to enter the empire, was bound to be dubious. Orosius practically accuses Stilicho of complicity with Alaric, and certainly charges him with the invitation of the Vandals, Alans and Suaves into Gaul in 406. Aetius was for years the friend of the Huns, Rissimo was apparently not averse to inciting the Visigoths to war against a Roman commander in Gaul. Inevitably, therefore, a Roman party formed itself in opposition to the master of the troops, a party curiously uniting within its ranks the Senate, the eunuchs of the court, and some jealous soldier with his followers. The result would be a coup d'etat, such as those of 408 or 454. But inevitably, a new magister succeeds to the assassinated Stilicho or Aetius, and if the struggle still continues to be waged, as, for instance, between Anthemius and Rissima, its predestined end, the foundation of a kingdom of Italy by some real or virtual generalissimo, draws constantly nearer. In the course of this struggle, religious motives apparently intertwine themselves with the underlying motive of racial feeling. Stilicho would seem to have stood for toleration, and a Catholic reaction, headed by the court, followed upon his fall, and gave to the episcopate an increase of jurisdiction, while it banished all enemies of the faith from the imperial service. Yet Litorius, the lieutenant of Aetius, 
put his trust in the responses of seers and the monitions of demons, as late as 439. Rusimer, though no pagan, was an Arian. The extreme orthodoxy of the court of Ravenar contrasted with the dubious faith of the soldiery and its leaders, must thus have helped to whet the intensity of party strife. In the period which we are to consider, it would thus appear that the great feature, from an external point of view, is the occupation of successive portions of the Western Empire by barbaric kings, of whom the greatest is Gaiseric, the hero of the last scene of the wandering of the nations who links by his subtle policy the various enemies of the empire into one system of attack, while internally the dominant factor is the transmutation of the Diocletian autocracy into a quasi-constitutional monarchy, in which the last members of the Theodosian house sink into emperor's faenance, and the commander-in-chief becomes, as it were, a mayor of the palace. Yet another feature in external policy is the relation of the Western emperors to those of the East, and other features deserving of notice in internal development are the growth of the papacy and the new importance from time to time assumed by the Senate. Upon the Eastern Empire the West is again and again forced to rely. The Eastern emperors give the West its rulers, Valentinian III, Anthemius, Nepos, or in any case they give a legitimate title to the rulers whom the West, in one way or another, has found for itself. Not only so, but upon occasion they give to the West the succour, which again and again it is forced to beg in the course of its struggle with the Vandals. Theoretically, as always, the unity of the Empire persists. There is still one Empire with two joint rulers. But in practice, after 395, there are two separate states with separate policies and separate lines of development, and both Priscus in the east and Sidonius Apollinaris in the west acknowledge the fact of the separation. In these separate states there is indeed much that is parallel. The east has to face the Huns and the Goths equally with the West. Like the West, it has its barbarian magistry militia, with the great difference, however, that there are generally two concurrent magistry, to weaken each other by their rivalry, and the Eastern Emperor has to deal with Aspar in 471, as Valentinian III had dealt with Aetius in 454. In both empires, again, the House of Theodosius became extinct at much the same time. But here the parallel ends. In the West, the death of Valentinian III was followed by the rule of the emperor-makers, Rissima, Gundabad and Orestes, and by a succession of nine emperors in 21 years. In the East, new and powerful emperors arose, who found the office of master of the troops far weaker than in the West and were able, by the alliance they formed with the Isaurians, to discover in their own realms a substitute and an antidote for barbaric auxiliaries, and thus to prolong the existence of their empire for a thousand years. 
Meanwhile, ecclesiastical development confirmed the separation and widened the differences between the two empires, while Eastern theologians pursued their metaphysical enquiries into the unity of the Godhead, a new school of churchmanship, of a legal rather than a metaphysical complexion, arose in the West under the influence of St. Augustine, and the growth of the papacy, especially under the rule of Leo I, 440 to 461, gave to this new school a dogmatic arbiter and an administrative ruler of its own. The development of the papacy, like the new vigour which the Senate occasionally displays, is largely the result of the decadence of the Western emperors and of their seclusion in the marshes of Ravenna. The pietism of the court, under the influence of Placidia, helped to confirm a power which its withdrawal to Ravenna had already begun to establish. While the victories of Pope Leo over heresies in Italy his successful interference against monophysitism in the East and the prestige of his mission to Attila in 451 and his mediation with Gesseric in 455 contributed to the increase both of his ecclesiastical power and of his political influence. Meanwhile, the bishops everywhere in the West tended to become the leading figures in their dioceses. The constitutions of 408 gave them civil jurisdiction in their diocese and the power of enforcing the laws against heresy. In the chief town of his diocese, each bishop gradually came to discharge the duties, even if he did not assume the office, of the defensor civitatis. And whether a barbarian kingdom was established, the bishop was a natural mediator between the conquerors and their subjects. The new importance assumed by the Senate in the course of the 5th century is evident both at Constantinople and at Rome. During the minority of Theodosius II, it is chiefly the Senate of Constantinople which aids the regent Pulchera and her minister Anthemius, the Praetorian prefect, in the conduct of affairs, and through the Roman Senate hardly exerts any continuous influence. Again and again in times of crisis, it helps to determine the course of events. The autocracy consolidated by Diocletian begins to revert to the original diarchy of princeps and senatus, which Augustus had founded. In the early years of the 5th century, partly in the later years of Stilicho, who made it his policy to favour the Senate, and partly during the interregnum, in the effective exercise of the office of Magister Militia, which lasted from the fall of Stilicho till the appearance of Constantius, 411. It had shown considerable activity, but the period of its greatest influence covers the last 25 years of the Western Empire. It was with two of the chief senators that Pope Leo went to meet Attila in 451. It was before the Senate that Valentinian defended himself for the assassination of Aetius in 454. The assassination of Valentinian himself was followed by the accession of Maximus, a member of the great senatorial family of the Anaisi 
and it has even been suggested that the accession of Maximus perhaps indicates an attempt of the Anaisi to establish a new government in the West. Independent of Constantinople, and resting on the support of the Senate. Maximus fell, but his successor Avitus, who came to the throne by the support of a Gallo-Roman party, was resisted by the Senate and fell in his turn. The accession of the next emperor, Majorian, is at any rate in form a triumph for the Senate. In his first constitution, Majorian thanks the Senate for letting its choice fall upon him, and promises to govern by its advice. But the reign of Anthemius, 467 to 472, seems to mark the zenith of senatorial power. It was the appeal of the Senate to Constantinople, which led to his accession. During his reign, the Senate is powerful enough to try and condemn Arvandus, the Praetorian prefect of Gaul, on a charge of treason and in the civil war which precedes his fall, the Senate takes his side against his adversary, Rissima. Thus, in the paralysis of the imperial authority, the Senate stands side by side, and sometimes face to face, with the military power as the representative of public authority and civil order. Its effective power is indeed little. The sword is too strong and too keen for that but at any rate in the agonies of the empire, it behaves not unworthily of its secular tradition. And indeed, in still other ways, one cannot but feel that the end of Rome was not unworthy of herself. Her last work in her age-long task of ruling the peoples was to give into the hands of the Teutonic tribes her structure of law and her system of administration. To the one, as late as 438. The Codex Theodosianus had just been added, while the other was being reformed and purified, as late as the days of the last real emperor of the West, Majorian. So Rome handed on the torch, as it were, newly trimmed, and though we must admit that in fact the imperial government of the 5th century suffered from the impotence of over-centralisation, we must also allow that she was in intention, as Professor Dill has well said, probably never so anxious to check abuses of administration, or so compassionate for the desolate and the suffering, as in the years when her forces were being paralysed. The figures in the drama of the last years of the Western Empire, which have perhaps had the greatest appeal for the imagination of the historian, are those of Gala Placidia and of Attila. Both figures have indeed a significance, which deserves some little consideration. Ravenna still testifies today to the fame of Placidia, and her name suggests the names of many others, her kinswoman and contemporaries, Pulcheria, Eudocia, Eudoxia and Honoria, whose influence appears in the pages of the Byzantine historians to have largely determined the destinies of their age. It is indeed, writes Gregorovius, a remarkable historic phenomenon, that in periods of decadence, some female figure generally rises into prominence. And Professor Berry has also remarked that the influence of women was a natural result of the new mode of palatial life, 
a result which is obviously apparent in the attribution of the title of Augusta to Eudoxia in the east and to Placidia in the west. Yet one cannot but feel that the Byzantine historians have been led by a certain feminism, if it may be so called, which is characteristic of the historiography to attribute to women, at any rate as regards the West, an excessive influence on the politics of the period. The fifth century was the age of the erotic novel, of Daphnis and Chloe, of Lucip and Cleotophon, and it would almost appear as if Byzantine historians had infused into their history the eroticism of contemporary novels. It is therefore permissible to doubt whether Honoria was really responsible for the attack of Attila upon the West, or Eudoxia for the sack of Rome by Geyseric, whether Olympiodorus' account of the relations of Honorius and Placidia after the death of Constantius is not a play of fancy, and the story given by Johannes Antiochinus and Procopius of the seduction of the wife of Maximus by Valentinian III, which led Maximus to compass his death, is not equally fanciful. The figure of Attila owes much of its fascination to the vivid description which Priscus gives of his court and Jordan's of the great battle of the Moriac Plain. And the Nibelung Genlid has added the attraction of legend to the appeal of history. Attila has, indeed, his significance in the history of the world. It matters little that he was vanquished in one of the so-called decisive battles of the world. If he had been the victor on the Moriac Plain, and had lived for twenty years afterwards instead of two, he would nonetheless have fallen at last, if only the allies who stood together in that battle had continued their alliance. The real significance of Attila lies in the fact that the pressure of his Huns forced the Romans and the Teutons to recognise that the common interest of civilization was at stake, and thus drove them to make the great alliance, on which the future progress of the world depended. The fusion of Romans and Teutons, of which the marriage of Atolf and Placidia, as it is described in the pages of Olympiodorus, may seem to be a harbinger, is cemented in the bloodshed of the Moriac Plain. Between the death of Alaric and the fall of Romulus Augustulus, the progress of events may be arranged in three definite stages a period which is marked by the Patriciate of Constantius, begins in 410 and ends with the death of Honorius in 423. During this period, there takes place the Visigothic settlement in the south of France. A second period marked by the Patriciate of Asius covers the reign of Valentinian III and ends in 455. It is the period of the Vandal settlement in Africa and of Hunnish inroads into Gaul and Italy. A final period in which the Patriciate is held by Rissima follows upon the extinction of the Theodosian house in the west. It ends in the phrase of Count Marcellinus, who alone seems to have realised the importance of the event, with the extinction of the western empire of the Roman race and the settlement of Odovacar in Italy.
At the end of 410, Rufinus, as he wrote the preface to his translation of the homilies of Origen in a Sicilian villa, which looked across to Reggio, saw the city in flames, and witnessed the gathering of the ships with which Alaric was preparing to invade Africa. A little later, and he may have seen the ships destroyed by a tempest. A little later still, and he may have heard of Alaric's death and of his burial in the bed of the Bucento. The Gothic king was succeeded by his brother-in-law, Atolf. And upon the doings of Atolf, for the next two years there rests a cloud of darkness. We know indeed that he stayed in Italy till the spring of 412. We learn from the Theodosian Code that he was in Tuscany in 411, and we are told by Jordanus that at this time he was spoiling Italy of public and private wealth alike, and that his Goths stripped Rome once more, like a flock of locusts, while Honorius sat powerless behind the walls of Ravenel. The one rock left to the emperor in the deluge, which at this time covered Italy, Gaul and Spain. But the story of Jordanus is probably apocryphal. Orosius and Olympiodorus, who are excellent contemporary authorities, both remark on the prosperity of Rome in the years that followed, on the sack of 410. Recent as is the sack, we would think, as we look at the multitude of the Roman people, that nothing at all had happened were it not for some traces of fire. In the face of this evidence, a second plundering of Rome by Atolf is improbable, and it appears equally improbable when we consider the character of the new Gothic king and the natural line of his policy. A Narbonese citizen, who had perhaps witnessed the marriage of Atolf to Galla Placidia in 414 at Narbon, and heard the shouts of acclamation from Romans and Goths alike, which hailed the marriage festivities, reported to St. Jerome at Bethlehem, in the hearing of Erosius, the words which he had often heard fall from the lips of Atolf. I have found by experience that my Goths are too savage to pay any obedience to laws. But I have also found that without laws a state is never a state. And so I have chosen the glory of seeking to restore and to increase by Gothic strength the name of Rome, wherefore I avoid war and strive for peace. In 411, Atolf had indeed already strong motives for seeking peace. He had abandoned the African expedition of Alaric, but he needed the supplies which that expedition had been meant to procure, and which he could now only gain from the emperor. And he had in his train the captive Placidia, the sister of Honorius, whose hand would carry the succession to her brother's throne. To negotiate with Honorius for supplies and for formal consent to his marriage with Placidia was thus the natural policy of Atolf. And in such negotiations, the year 411 may have passed. But if there were negotiations, there was no treaty. Honorius had been strengthened by the arrival of a Byzantine fleet with an army on board, and he showed himself obdurate. When Atolf was driven from Italy into Gaul, apparently by lack of supplies, in the spring of 412, 
he did not come as the friend and ally of Honorius. In 412, Gaul was beginning to emerge from a state of whirling chaos. The usurper within and the barbarian from without had divided the country since 406. There had been two swarms of invaders and two different tyrants. In 406, the Vandals, Alans and Suaves had poured into Gaul, surged to the feet of the Pyrenees, and falling back for a while had then, with the aid of treachery, poured over the mountains and vanished into Spain, which henceforth became the prey of four plagues, the sword and famine and pestilence and the noisome beast, 409. In the wake of this tide had followed an influx of Franks, Alemanni and Burgundians, and in 411 these three peoples were still encamped in Gaul, along the western bank of the Rhine, preparing for a permanent settlement. The usurpation of Constantine in 406 had synchronised with the invasion of Gaul by the Vandals, Alans and Suaves, and indeed the invasion was probably the result of the usurpation, for Stilicho would seem to have invited these people into Gaul, in the hope of barring the usurper's way into Italy. In 409, a second tyrant had arisen in Spain. Gerontius, one of the Constantine's own officers, had created a rival emperor called Maximus, and it was this usurpation which had caused the invasion of Spain by the Vandals and their allies. Gerontius, having invited them into Spain, as Stilicho had before invited them into Gaul, in order to gain their alliance in his struggle with Constantine. In 411, Gerontius had advanced into Gaul and was besieging Constantine in Arles, while Constantine was hoping for the arrival of an army of relief from the barbarians on the Rhine. At this moment, Constantius, the new master of the troops, arrived in Gaul to defend the cause of the legitimate Emperor Honorius. He met with instant success. Gerontius was overwhelmed and perished. Constantine's barbarian reinforcements were attacked and defeated. Constantine's barbarian reinforcements were attacked and defeated. Constantine himself was captured and sent to Italy for execution. By the end of 411, Gaul was clear of both usurpers, and the Roman general stood face to face with the Franks, Alemanni and Burgundians, who had meanwhile, during the operations around Arles, created a new emperor, Jovinus, to give a colour of legality to their position in Gaul. Without attacking Jovinus, however, Constantius seems to have left Gaul at the end of the year, perhaps because the northward march of Atolf was already causing unrest at Ravenna. When Atolf's march finally conducted him over Mont Genevere into Gaul, somewhere near Valence, in the spring of 412, it seemed probable that he would throw himself on the side of Jovinus, now encamped in Auvergne, and acquire from the usurper a settlement in southern Gaul. It was his natural policy. It was the course which was advised by the ex-emperor Attalus, who still followed in the train of the Goths, but Jovinus and Atolf failed to agree. Atolf seems to have occupied Bordeaux 
in the course of 412, and Jovinus regarded him as an intruder, whose presence in Gaul threatened himself and his barbarian allies, while on his side Atolf attacked and killed one of Jovinus' supporters, with whom he had an ancient feud. Dardanus, the loyal prefect of the Gauls, was able to win Atolf over to the side of his master, and some sort of treaty was made, 413, by which Atolf engaged to send to Honorius the heads of Jovinus and his brother Sebastian, in return for regular supplies of provisions, and the recognition of his position in Bordeaux, and possibly the whole of Aquitanica, Secunda. Atoll fulfilled his promise with regard to Jovinus and Sebastian, but by the autumn of 413 he had already quarrelled with Honorius, and the Goths and the Romans were once more at war. Two causes were responsible for the struggle. In the first place the government of Honorius had failed to provide the Goths with the promised supplies. The failure is evidently connected with the revolt of Heraclean, the Count of Africa, in the course of the year 413. Heraclean, influenced by the example of many usurpations in Gaul, and finding a basis in the anti-imperial sentiment of the persecuted Donatists of Africa, had prepared for revolt in 412, and in 413 he prohibited the export of corn from his province, the great granary of Rome, and had sailed for Italy with an armada which contained, according to Erosius, the almost incredible number of 3,700 ships. He was beaten at Otricoli in Umbria with great slaughter, and flying back to Africa, perished at Carthage. But his revolt, however unsuccessful in its issue, exercised during its course a considerable effect on the policy of Honorius. On the one hand, it must have been largely responsible for the treaty with Atolf in 413. The imperial government needed Constantius in Italy to meet Heraclean, and destitute of troops of its own in Gaul, it had to induce the Goths to crush the usurper Jovinus on its behalf. At the same time, however, the revolt had also exercised an opposite effect. It had prevented the imperial government from furnishing the Goths with supplies, and had made it inevitable that Atolf should seek by war what he could not get by peace. End of section 47